on today's episode, part two of my conversation with Alex Murray. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. As you well know by now, uh, last week we did part one with Alex Murray talking about why um, some treatments, why some diagnoses, why some management plans are just different from one PHT client to another. And we continue our conversation. If you haven't listened to part one, don't know why you'd listen to part two straight away, but um, go back and have a listen to that because we um, follow on from that um, quite suddenly. And so here we go. Here's part two. So when it comes to a treatment path, should what should a runner keep in consideration? Should we um, be asking other people what their pain experience is like or what's worked for them? Or should we just follow a clinician, follow second opinions? What's a, a good, what's a good cause for that? I'd probably hijack this a little bit and just say before I jump to before we jump to, to treatment I'd probably um, just jump on your point about the symptoms matching um, or not matching a, uh, a presentation um, because a, a cause health does spend a lot of it has a whole chapter in their book on what they call medically unexplained symptoms and we're finding that like 50% of the symptoms people see we can't match to a specific condition or it has so much overlap with other conditions like think about a headache you know, it's a very non-specific symptom and it's like, well, that could be a brain tumor or it could be stress um, or it could be dehydration. And there's this vast sort of difference. So when we're dealing with symptoms, I mean, I always think about heart attack in women, you know, the, the reason why we don't pick up heart attacks in, in women a lot more is because when we studied heart attacks, originally we only studied men. And so really a lot of our diagnoses just come from observing lots of people uh, and then sort of trying to spend a lot of time deducing exactly where those symptoms come from. And realistically, you know, there's so many, like we said, overlapping symptoms that it's hard to, to do that. So a, a sort of a classic sort of example of um, uh, this, this situation is I had a patient come in the other day, plantar heel pain is what we ended up having, but she had all these neural symptoms exactly like you described. And I was going, whoa, I don't know what's going on, but we scanned her. Um, we found that it was just a really irritated plantar plantar fascial was the main finding. And then we said, well, let's just start treating it like plantar fat, like a plantar fascial injury. Let's see what happens. And she got a lot better and, but it was good. We'd rule out the red flags. We saw some red flags and said, well, this might be a neural injury. Let's, let's check it out. We stepped through the process. She got better. Um, but it was, it sort of comes from this idea that someone's broken and we need to fix them. And the only way to fix them is a treatment when realistically, if we start managing someone um, doing the things that we know we can do and could be helpful, does the body start to sort of 
sort itself out in a way because the body is healing body is adaptable and so i think that's sort of the the way i would explain it is that we can definitely get you into a better place so can you respond better to other treatments do certain things just disappear so if someone's you know if someone's got plantar fasciitis and they're walking on the outside of their foot and they're developing a perineal injury so attended on the outside of their foot and to get sore I don't try and treat both. I just say, well, let's, what's the keystone one that we can start with that will then potentially solve the other problems naturally. Um, so we, that's sort of why I sort of look at diagnosis, not always being um, incredibly important because it, you know, if we diagnose that person with, you know, a perineal injury and a plantar fascial injury, they're two completely different treatments or two similar treatments, but it would involve doing a lot more that would make no difference to the person. Um, so that's sort of where we come in. Yeah. It makes me think of when I was working at clinics, I saw a ton of low back pain. It was, I probably saw maybe three or four patients a day, new patients with low back pain. And I would have seen thousands in the eight to 10 years I was working in clinics. And I still had no idea. Like if someone came in with a certain presentation, they had low back pain and we got them to do certain movements, certain tests, to have a feel around. I would still have no idea how, they'd, how they would respond to treatment based on their pattern of symptoms until I actually started some treatment, start a little bit of treatment, see how they responded, and then did more of that treatment. And it just goes to show there's like when it comes, especially around low back pain, there's so many things that could happen and they've actually got a, they've labeled more than 80% of people with low back pain as non-specific low back pain. And it's just a diagnosis that they've decided to label saying, okay, we don't know exactly what's going on structurally. Everything's fine, but they still have back pain. Um, so we'll just label them as non-specific. And this is what we should encourage. We should encourage movement. We should encourage strength. We should reassure them, educate them, you know, avoid bed rest, all this sort of stuff, which is just very, very fluffy, but they get better, but there's no real specific stuff um, when it comes to a diagnosis. And like you say, when some, some very common running conditions like patellofemoral pain could overlap or could deviate from its very classic presentation, and then you could have a, an overlap of two types of things. Maybe it could be ITB syndrome. Maybe it could be a combination of things because everyone's presentation is so, so different. So um, rather than the runner feeling like becoming fearful, becoming worried or being confused with all of these um, different diagnoses or different presentations or not fitting a classic thing like they're reading what patellofemoral pain should fit, maybe it's, it's a reassuring from to know that this is normal. It's normal for there to be different symptoms. It's totally normal for there to be um, not this classic treatment or maybe not respond to a classic treatment and then just try something else. And as long as they're, um, as long as they are responding, if they're not responding, try something different, but if they are responding, then mm. be reassured with that and continue along that treatment path. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's definitely the case. And I mean, when we look at most studies as well, we average results, uh, I mentioned it before. And so, you know, whenever we do a treatment, there's always going to be 20, 30% of people that don't get better or don't get as much better. And we're really bad at, um, communicating that and saying, well, look, there are, you know, people who aren't going to respond, but when we look at for example, you know, you know, opening up the can of worms, that is low back pain. Um, you know, we see people that can respond to yoga. We see people respond to Pilates. We see people respond to strengthening. We see people respond to, um, uh, you know, it's very, very specific, um, retraining, you know, 
core muscles and things. We see all of these things be helpful. So it sort of tells us, well, we can, we get a choice of a lot of the things that we can do. But when we sort of talk about something being non-specific, there is still a specific cause. There is still something specific happening. The, the issue is, is what we're identifying by saying it's non-specific is we have no tests or ideas to be able to identify it. But also the fact is that that being non, a non-specific diagnosis means we're also not at risk of having a problem if we miss something. So we know non-specific low back pain, you know, doesn't mean that we have a fracture or something that's going to get worse and they're going to become crippled. Um, you know, we've, we've become very good at identifying those serious pathologies. So being non-specific really means that, that the field is unfortunately a bit more open, which is a good thing in terms of treatment choice, but it's a bad thing when we find things aren't working for someone because something specific is still happening. And that's where I sort of switch from more of a clinician mode to a coach mode, where the idea is, is I'm not um, above the person saying, you need to do this, you need to do that. I'm sort of spending a lot more time coaching people through and saying, okay, if this happened, what, what do you think we should do? How's this going to fit? How about when we change this? What are you experiencing when we do these movements or these treatments? And we're really just trying to coach someone through. And so having had a patient who, and actually have uh, done some interviews with this patient that are available publicly, um, who went through this process with patellofemoral pain of seeing all these different clinicians, getting all these different diagnoses, doing all these different things. He was a classic sort of person that didn't fit the mold of the normal, of normal responses, was going to everyone, ended up very confused. And really what the biggest difference was, was having someone who was more of a coach, someone who was going to come alongside him and go, okay. I'm here. We're going to figure this out. I don't know what it is. I don't know what, what you respond to, but let's create a plan for you. Let's be alongside you. Let's build you back up. Let's figure out what we can do for your life. And so his big thing was rugby. And so he wanted to get back to rugby. So we made a plan and said, well, these are the things that you need to definitely do to get back to rugby. Will they help your knee? Maybe. Will they not, you know, will they um, do you any harm? Absolutely not. It's going to help you get towards your goal. And in that sort of process, we went backwards and forwards and we essentially just built him back up. Now he's playing rugby and he's doing well, but with his experience, I'm still the coach. I'm still going, you know, he still checks in every now and then he still wants to come in and talk about the experience. And, you know, it's got nothing to do with diagnosis. It's got nothing to do with me having to treat. It's a case of, well, we still don't exactly know what's going on. And it's just become a process of, well, you know, we're going to check in and, and keep making sure you're on the straight and narrow. Just listening to Alex talk about that, um, just wanted me to bring up one particular topic around, I guess, health professionals and therapists being a bit more transparent with the expectations and the response to treatment. And it's very, very hard for a therapist to um, say that we don't know exactly how you're going to respond and kind of tiptoe around those fine lines. But if they can communicate in a way that says, look, we're not entirely sure how effective this response would be, but at least we're learning along the way. At least we're knowing that what we do may be effective, maybe a little bit effective, maybe ineffective. And then we just uh, reiterate along the way. And I think trying to think of like the opposite example of a therapist saying, you need to do this, this, this in order to get better. And then if you do this, 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 and you don't get better, it actually creates a lot of uncertainty, a bit of fear, anxiety about maybe your case is more severe, more different, irresponsible, like irresponsible, irresponsive to treatment and can spark a lot of fear and anxieties. Whereas if that therapist in the, in, at the start was to communicate in a way that said, all right, 
when you, if you don't respond to treatment, okay, this is just another test. It's just another thing that we need to do to learn more about your symptoms and reiterate and learn from that response. So talking in absolutes, talking with a lot of confidence that you will get better if you do this, you will get better if you follow 10 shockwave sessions and then um, implement some strengthening after that. It's, it could be quite tricky and um, can put a lot of hope and that kind of language can create a lot of hope and a lot of buy-in initially, but if it doesn't work, then it, it falls falls apart and it can actually be more detrimental than good. And what Alex was talking about when it comes to a coaching approach, I really love that because when I work with athletes online, I have packages. So I don't just have um, you know just one consult where we jump on a call, I say a couple of things, and then we just leave it there and revisit next week like a standard consult kind of thing mine is a package so either like in most cases a month package where we establish a management plan to start with and then it's just following side by side day by day throughout the process in case there are fluctuations in symptoms or in case there are some confusions or lack of clarity around the management plan we can very frequently communicate back and forth just to make sure that um, you're clear with everything and that we're modifying symptoms or modifying exercises based on symptoms and changes and fluctuations and flare-ups and all those unexpected things that might happen. And so that was a really nice, um, it was a really nice take that Alex had that we may need to start taking on that coaching role and a therapist that you might be looking for, perhaps try and find someone that is eliciting more of that coaching role and being a little bit more transparent around expectations and their treatment um, approaches. And so that's a really nice thing to think about both from the therapist side and from the patient side of things. Feel free to repeat yourself because I know we've talked about it several times already. But simplistically put, why is why does someone respond differently to treatment? Why would, if we follow, say, the evidence shows that with people with plantar fasciitis, stretching, strengthening, orthotics helps. Let's follow that with all of our plantar fasciitis patients. Why, do, why is treatment so different? Why is the impact so different between people? So we could look at lots of different things. So it could be um, the fact that when they do an exercise, they take longer to recover. So we know, and it's more in tendons than in fascia, but we know tendons in some people take up to 72 hours to completely recover from a bout of exercise. Some people as little as 24 hours. So if we're doing a set of exercises and we're doing quite heavy and then they're doing that in a usual sort of uh, two days, so 48 hours after they start again, or maybe only 36 um, we might not have that time for them to completely have recovered from that previous bout of exercise. They haven't responded. They haven't gotten stronger. And then we're adding more on. So they're in a fatigued state or not a perfect state for them to then benefit from it. So the exercises might actually provide no benefit. There can be factors like if someone is on their feet all day working and moving, that can be a lot of volume and load already. So if we give the same treatment plan of set amount of calf raises at a set intensity, we're adding it on top of load throughout all the day. So there's also that other factor of what are they doing throughout the day? There's lots of genetic factors uh, as well in terms of how people respond to injuries. Um, there's a lot of things about, you know, diet and recovery that we don't completely understand how important that they are need to change. Often not. 
um, but they may have an impact on why someone responds better than others. Um, there's the sport that people play, the movements that they do. Um, so, you know, it's harder to avoid certain movements in certain sports and activities. It's easier in others. So, um, you know, when someone is sore, um, if you are, for example, having a really sore knee and, you know, you are playing, you know, rugby and I keep going back to rugby because it's, it's the sport that I work in at the moment. But if we're thinking, you know, I'm seeing someone in a scrum, you know, they have to be in that position. They have to be loaded in a certain way for their position in the, in the scrum. And so if they continually keep doing that on top of everything else, that may also impact it where, uh, you know, other sports and, you know, people might continue to keep playing or might be able to continue to keep running because as they're moving, they're subconsciously able to adjust their gait or their running or their walking or however they're moving to offload that, that, that area. That's why we limp um, and we can limp unconsciously. So there's lots and lots of things going on. And this is sort of our role as a clinician to try and, understand get this information out of patients and understand it as best we can and put together a picture of why someone may or may not respond um, but the unfortunately the, the short answer is is that we don't know and a big problem is because in the research we have not embraced this understanding of how the human body works and we've only really looked at one or two things and excluded everything else assuming that they're all the same so you know going back to the matchbox example in the research we've just focused on the match and the box we haven't focused on the oxygen the environment all the other things that would affect whether that we're actually going to get a lit match and a fire this would be a nice segue because um i know cause health like you say they they challenge assumptions and in the past couple of weeks maybe a couple of months I've um, tried to assess my own bias towards treatment and my own limitations. And I think what I've done, especially around this podcast, is focus too heavily on the evidence-based stuff and like focus too much on avoiding things that isn't evidence-based. Like if um, someone comes in and they have pain, they say, oh, I've been foam rolling my ITV, should I continue doing that? I say, well, it's not doing anything. Um, you're better off doing something um, that's evidence-based. But I recognize that because someone is so individual and we're dealing with the brain, we're dealing with beliefs, we're dealing with like any individual unique circumstances um, <clears throat> that maybe I'm too fixated, too rigid towards just following the evidence. So um, one thing that caught my attention while I was listening to you on prior episodes uh, on different podcasts was talking about the limitations around evidence and um what like say rcts why they're they're quite limiting do you want to maybe just um i guess help broaden my perspective of things and making sure that i'm not just focusing on um the pure evidence side of things and why we should be broadening our, our horizons a little bit yeah yeah so uh, yeah this is we can go down a rabbit hole here but i, I can keep it very sort of sort of basic um, so because realistically the foundations of evidence are really basic. You know, if we have a study, essentially what we're doing is, and let's take a randomized controlled trial. This is just a, um, a very, very controlled study. So we control a lot of factors. So, we, so we, let's say we take a whole group of runners, we split them into two groups and we make sure that the groups are roughly on average, the same, a bunch, a whole bunch of factors. Um, so we look, so we're, we're assuming that yes, they're all sort of roughly the same. We then give uh, one a, for example, for a for a trial with a placebo, we're giving one a uh, a real treatment and one a placebo, and 
Uh, we see how that treatment goes and then we compare them. And what we're sort of trying to say is we're looking at and going, well, we've got these two groups of runners. They're very, very similar. So we're assuming they're the same. And we're saying these people, we gave a treatment. These people, we gave a placebo. These people got uh 50% better. These people got 20% better. So the treatment effect, the specific sort of effect of the treatment is 30%, for example, of that improvement. So we can say, yeah, these people improved more. This treatment is evidence-based is essentially what we're saying. But the issue is, is that we're averaging. We're making lots of assumptions. We're saying, well, first of all, these two groups are different runners. We're assuming because they look similar that they are similar on a chemical level, um, on a tissue level. And we can't say that. Um, and partially because we, we can't possibly measure every single factor. We're not going to get a blood test on everyone that does a, that enters a patellofemoral pain study. We're not, we can't control to that level. But the idea was that if we got people that looked the same, it's essentially like being able to have one person come come into the clinic and have that exact same person do the treatment and not do the treatment. Um, the, the other thing is that we average the results, as I've said before. So there's lots of people in the group that would do really well. And there's some people in the group that would do poorly. We've got studies that show that when we break out that, that average and we actually look at individuals, everyone responds quite differently. Um, so there's a fantastic study that shows that, you know, out of 10 individuals, no one followed the average of no effect. Some people got better, some people got worse, but the average was almost zero. Um, so, you know, we can look at this treatment and go, wow, you know, no one got better from this treatment, but actually a whole bunch of people got better and a whole bunch of people got worse. We just missed that. So when we're talking about things that are, that are evidence-based, we've, we've got to keep in mind that that's what's happening. So for an individual, if they're coming in and saying, you know, I did this treatment and I got worse, that's irrefutable. We can't, you know, often the old view is, but the evidence says you should, you, you know, people get better with this. So you must have done something wrong. And it's like, no, we know that, you know, if with a lot of treatments, two, three out of 10 will not get better. And so we've got to take that information and we've got to look at that and go, well, okay, so what else can we do? And when we're not looking for that one right answer, we go, we've got all of these other answers. We go and we find something that, that you know, we think may work. Or if we try and understand about and, and ask questions and, and work through potentially why that didn't work for them, we can start to, to be able to guide people better. So from an evidence-based perspective, um, that's kind of the issue that we have. Um, those are sort of the assumptions that we're taking in, but also the fact is that we just don't have a lot of evidence. You know, when we look at plantar fascia and strengthening, we actually don't have that much evidence. We have heaps of evidence though for shockwave because it's really easy to put a shockwave machine on someone and, you know, pound, pound the, the fascia and then go, did you get better? So there's this, also this lack of information as well. And so there's a, there's a great quote by professor Roger Kerry. Um, uh, when I was talking to him, he, he pretty much just said, you know, you can be evidence-based by just being having a systematic process, being systematic in your thought processes is being evidence-based. So if someone comes in and we think about, well, we actually have no evidence for this condition or this person or, or this setup, what can we do? Well, we just have to be systematic in how we approach and not sort of, and that's where I think a lot of patients go wrong or get, or not so much they go wrong, but they sort of get directed in the wrong way is because everyone's sort of going, go here and do this, go here and do that, do this now. And it's this focus on what's that one switch we can flip that will then solve all their problems when it's a case of, but how are we building this person towards their goals? How is what they're doing for a, what they're given as a treatment? How does that fit with them? How does that fit with their life? How does that fit with the goal of running more or running faster or, um, you know, just being able to run pain-free. How does that fit in? 
And what are we doing to their body? Because when we start to just search for that switch flip, we're often then with the treatments, just throwing things, you know, throwing spaghetti at the window and, and seeing what sticks rather than saying, okay, you know, I have someone that I'm starting to figure out how we're going to get them back running. Great. So what are we going to do? Well, I'm going to give them a strength program because they haven't been running in four months, five months. Um, they want to get back running. Great. So they need some base level strength. They need to start doing some exercise. Here's some exercises. Will it solve their problem? I don't know. Um, but frankly, you know, they need it for their goal. Let's get them exercising. Let's find exercises they can do comfortably and confidently. And let's start building that. So when we start, when we get two, three months down the line and we, we, we've started to get control of their pain, they're back running, they're building up, we've got this base level of strength that we can call upon. Uh, and that's where I see a lot of patients get lost because they're going from one clinician to another, bouncing, 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 and no one's really going, um, how am I going to guide this person back? They're sort of just going, I'll solve, the, I'll solve that problem. I'll try and fix that problem. And, and that's ultimately probably the thing that we know about the body is that we don't fix things the body is adaptable the body will help fix things itself to a certain degree and what we're often doing is help guiding the body into a place or an environment or a, a sort of a in, in sort of a position where it can then heal itself the best so one sort of other way of looking at it is is treatment and management is sometimes just getting out of the body's way of healing um, you know adjusting uh, the load of, you know, how much running someone's doing to essentially then allow the body to, to do its own thing. And then we start rebuilding as, as an example. Really interesting stuff there. Um, a few things that I wanted to highlight was, first of all, when it comes to pain, I guess, not responding to treatment. Uh, a bit earlier, Alex was talking about the, the loading that could go outside of your exercise or loading that is generated or accumulated outside of say your rehab exercises. And this might be one of the um, factors that means you're not responding to treatment or not responding to like your stock standard PHT treatment. But then we also need to consider things like diet. We need to consider things like um, pain, your thoughts. We all know that pain is generated from the brain and the brain's um, evaluation of all of its evidence and how it heightens or thinks there is a real or potential threat. That's what creates a lot of that pain. And that topic really rolls on into why sometimes that evidence-based practice relying heavily on that research can fall a bit short is because a lot of people as an individual, they're producing pain for very different reasons. It might be an actual threat. It might be a potential threat. It might be a catastrophizing approach. You might be really holding a belief that there is a lot of damage going on in that tendon. You may have a general, um, a real fear that loading that tendon causes um, more and more damage, sometimes irreversible damage. That's the belief that you have, whether, whether it's true or not. If you have that belief, the brain believes it to be true and then will produce the pain and produce the, the heightened threat level and sensitize that whole entire area because of that. And because pain, thoughts, beliefs, all these sort of things, um, we can't really measure that, re that well. It's um, something to really consider when we talk about evidence-based practice and say the three stages of rehab, the three stages of loading the tendon, which I've had in earlier episodes. Um, the evidence will follow 
or put people into groups, follow a particular treatment, follow a particular management plan, and one treatment group will outperform or recover better than another treatment group. And then we say, okay, this is a better treatment for everyone. That's kind of the conclusion that we tend to make, but really it isn't because it is so multifactorial with beliefs, pain, science, all that sort of thing interwoven. Uh, Yes, on average, people might get better using that strategy. And as a starting point, we might have confidence in starting off someone with what the evidence shows, but you really shouldn't have any worry or fear if it may get to the situation where you don't respond to evidence-based treatments because we know it's so multifactorial and we could say, all right, let's just try a different approach where we are considering a bunch of different factors. And so it's good to think about, it's kind of reassuring to think about if you find that you're not responding to the same treatment plan that someone else may have been dealt in the past and yeah, it's, it's something that we really need to consider, which is why I love this topic so much. Um, all right, so let's continue with Alex. Alex, I'm going to try and attempt to summarize this whole conversation and say I'd like your additional comments afterwards. So when we're talking about assessment or like the cause of an injury, once someone is injured, the assessment that is taken and the cause where are they making assumptions in terms of the link of how they got injured? So there could be multiple stories that people tell or multiple opinions from different clinicians because we're just trying to piece that puzzle together. When it comes to a diagnosis, yes, we can have that label for peace of mind or just like a a generic kind of template to follow, but there's always going to be some overlap where not everyone will fit a certain thing or not everyone does fit that certain pattern. We're only just deviating plus or minuses the, the treatment pattern. So the template plus or minus your individual circumstances. But then when it comes to treatment, it's having that right understanding, having that clinical thinking in mind, but just seeing how the individual responds and then judging the treatment of that because we can be evidence-based, we can have the evidence in our mind, but because everyone's so unique and everyone's so individual, let's just try something, see how it goes for a couple of weeks or whatever time frame makes sense. If it's not working, then we need to try something else. If it is working, then we follow more of that or continue that and then add something else in. And then that's how we kind of formulate that management plan. Any additional comments? No, I think it's a really good summation. I, I think the the thing that I would sort of point out hearing that all sort of summarize, it sort of makes me think of these are all very big, broad level ideas. Uh, there's lots of specific information that we know. So a good example, patellofemoral pain, you want to do a squat to get people stronger. There is a range of motion where you will put more patella compression. You'll get more patella compression and potentially then start to irritate it. So there's lots of bits of information and things that are evidence-based within it um, that we can use. So it's not all airy-fairy. It's not all very, very fluffy. Um, It's just about how do we get that information and how do we fit it in? Well, it might be a case that, you know, someone can just keep doing squatting and despite that patella compression, it doesn't irritate them that much. And you're like, great, but there's some people where we can use that information and say, actually, you're someone I think we need to adjust your technique and give you um, uh, a, a variation of Bulgarian split squat or give you a sissy squat or give you something different to do um around that so yeah we can be i think there's lots of very specific knowledge we have this is broad level level knowledge of saying well how do we apply that knowledge um so yeah there's 
to sort of get out of the fluffiness. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of, if I'm thinking about what can a runner do with this information, what can a, um, if they're seeing a clinician, what, 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 what can they take out of this? And I think there's a few things and it just comes down to asking. I think the number one sort of one I ask always ask is, um, or I always say is, you know, any patient has to, has to get their brand out of a consult. And what brand sort of stands for is benefits, risks, alternatives, and um, what's the consequences of doing nothing. So if you're going to get a treatment, uh, a clinician should be able to answer what the benefits are of, of that treatment is. What are the risks of doing it? Uh, what's the alternatives that people have? So for a classic example is when people go get cortisone, um, especially we think like rotator cuff tears, getting um, cortisone into joints, um, there are risks. And so what are the alternatives that you have? So you're making a full informed decision, but also what's the benefits or risks or co just consequences of doing nothing for a bit and letting the body hand try and handle itself because there's lots of conditions that that would have a favorable natural history so an acute flare of low back pain is a classic example six weeks a lot of what we do doesn't make a huge difference our process is really just trying to at the moment best way to manage it is just try and keep you active and then we just set you up and say well so the consequences of doing nothing for this acute flare of, of low back pain um actually you know we can just do nothing and it's probably pretty okay. Same with sort of sciatica in its early stages. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of sort of uh, things. So I think asking, you know, getting your brand from out of, out of a consult, but also sort of focusing on your, on your goal and asking a clinician. So this is my goal. How does this treatment fit in? And how am I going to get back to my goal? What other things that could I be doing in addition to this specific treatment for my, for my condition that can help me get back to where, to where I want to be or where I get me to where I want to go. Uh, so asking those broad sort of questions, because yeah, if, if your clinician is struggling, then, you know, I, I don't like to be derogatory or say things, but if, you know, against certain people, but if your clinician is not able to explain these things to you and you're, you have a very sort of strict goal of, I want to get back to running or I want to start running faster, then we do have to ask the question of, is that the right clinician for you? Mm. Um, I'm not saying they're a bad clinician, but it's saying, is that the right clinician for what you are wanting to get out of them? So we think about, you know, in my clinic, you know, we have a number of different patients and, and we will internally refer to make sure that patient gets to see the clinician that we think is going to work best for them. And we have a variety of different options as well. So one of the few, you know, sort of podiatry, podiatry specific clinics that has, you know, a full gym setup. Um, well, so we have rehab options. We have all these sort of things and we're trying to, to match a, a patient with the, the treatment and help them reach their goals. And that's, that's how we do it. Um, and so, you know, we do get a lot of patients that come to us that are specific, you know, we can really help them. But at the same time, you know, there's lots of people out there that don't need that and can do very, very well at other clinics with, um, you know, less stuff, less options, um, and not this complete understanding of what's going on. And that's, that's perfect as well. But yeah. if you're struggling, that these are the things that I would ask. Well, that that's perfect. And when, when you're laying out that brand, um, the info, I was thinking of people with proximal hamstring tendinopathy. I get a ton of people and they will often talk uh, whether they should have surgery or not surgery. And it's, it's strange when people just like post on social media 
should I get surgery? Should I not get surgery? And get all these responses back and all these different outcomes. And when it comes down to it, when you talk to your therapist, when you talk to your GP, when you talk to your surgeon, if you just do that, list out that brand, the benefits, risks, alternative, and the cost of doing nothing, what will happen if we do nothing. And if you just lay that out and you get this real candid conversation, this you get all the information out there, then you can make that judgment call yourself. And the other thing I'll add on is make sure that you are happy with the response that you get, because you might ask about the benefits or the risks and a clinician or a surgeon might just rattle off a whole bunch of jargon and a whole bunch of um, stuff that you just, it just doesn't make sense to you, but you just yep. kind of say, oh yeah, okay. Um, and then just go to your next question. Make sure that you fully understand the response that comes out because a lot of clinicians are used to talking in like a certain medical jargon that they either they they'll just confuse you and you just don't want to feel stupid and ask the same question again or try and or ask to please simplify it um i know a lot of people are shy and just say well i asked the question but okay um just make sure you're really happy with the response and make, make sure it's okay just to ask the same question several times until you're happy with the response that you get yeah 100 percent, and i think that's I always sort of think is a good clinician is someone that sort of that's able to explain things incredibly well for someone to understand. Like if, if people are able to leave and go, yeah, I completely understand it. You know, I've taken this complex topic. I've taken this really sort of, I've been reading heaps, but you know, my role is to make it simple for someone to be able to walk away with. And that's sort of where it comes down to that plan. There's all this complexity going on in the background. There's all this crazy stuff that I'm thinking, but ultimately a patient should leave with a plan that makes sense. That's simple that they can follow step by step. And it doesn't matter. Like I don't have to, and I think that's potentially, you know, some of it, you know, may unfortunately be a bit of ego where they want to go, well, I want to show people that I've got this really complex understanding. And it's kind of like, but that's not the job. That's not what patients need. They're not there to be confused. They're there to get a simple, easy to understand plan. And really, uh, if we can take a whole bunch of really complex stuff and make it really simple, that's actually the better sign of intelligence um, because it shows that you can understand it and you can understand it enough that you can make it simple. If it's, if it's so complicated that you're not seeing the thread through, do you completely understand it? And that concludes our discussion. It concludes part two with Alex Murray. And I didn't really need to chime in um, for that the back half of that episode because we were talking about PHT specific stuff anyway. So hopefully you took a lot of benefit around that whole brand um, acronym to try and come to terms with uh, the best management, the best therapist for you. And I hope this has been enlightening. Hopefully this has been reassuring and left you kind of going away from this, these two parts with a lot of confidence and just maybe a new plan of attack, a new plan of action when it comes to managing a PHT if things aren't working or maybe things are working, just not at the the pace or um, at the effectiveness that you might be wanting or expecting. And maybe we can manipulate a few things in here, a few nuances in order for there to be an increase in treatment effectiveness. And yeah, I hope it's sparked some ideas. Maybe it sparks some questions for you to ask your therapist as well. And I hope that's delivered a lot of value. And so I um, hope you enjoyed these two parts and we'll catch you next episode. Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter podcast hosted by me. 
I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power.